0: I got home at about four thirty that afternoon and quickly ran out of daylight and I ended up being on the highest level of my roof, cleaning out gutters in the dark and the people driving by, if they could have even seen me, probably thought I was an idiot and they may have been right. So about a week later, the Blakers kindly and generously gave me this in hopes that I don't meet a premature death doing home maintenance in the dark. But in all seriousness, it's been awfully dark lately, hasn't it? Today, the sun rose at 745 a.m. And it will set at about 515 this evening. And yes, it'll be sunny today. But we're only going to have about nine and a half hours of daylight. It still seems like it's been awfully dark lately. Kids have already missed one dark, cold, icy day of school. Summer already seems like it was a long time ago, and we still have a long wait until spring. Most of the trees outside are gray and brown, with very little bright colors left. This cold and dark time of year has a significant impact on our world and on us here in the Midwest. Plants die. Animals hibernate. We lose our hard-earned suntans. Our joints get stiff, our muscles get tight. Seasonal affective disorder is a very real phenomenon, leading many of us to feel more moody, tired, and anxious than we typically do. Suicide rates increase dramatically around this time of year. And it's in this time of darkness that we celebrate the Christmas season, or if you prefer the more traditional church term, Advent. We hang bright and colorful lights. Churches that don't normally use candles during worship services break out the lighters. We burn fires in our fireplaces to make our living rooms warm and cozy in an attempt to combat the darkness and cold outside. But the truth is that no matter how many lights we hang, how many candles we light, how many fires we burn, we just can't get rid of the darkness of this season. In the big scheme of things, all we can really do is wait. On a much grander scale and in a more metaphorical sense, our world often feels like a dark and cold place. We see far too much in the way of violence, disease, injustice, poverty, war, divorce, hunger, death, abuse, natural disasters, addiction, pain, sorrow, you name it. We sometimes hear that the world is becoming a better place, and in some ways, it actually is. But it seems that no matter how many advances and breakthroughs we make, no matter how many charities we give to, no matter how often we talk about progress, there is still darkness. Our world is still fallen. It just seems that no matter how hard we try, we can't get rid of the darkness in our world. In the big scheme of things, all we can really do is wait. But what exactly are we Christians waiting for? The word Advent means arrival or appearance. During Advent, we look back and celebrate the first arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. The promised Messiah of God, the one who would save the people from their sins. But on top of that, we need to look ahead to the second arrival of Jesus, the appearance that hasn't happened yet. So this time of year, we look back to the manger. We should read about Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds and Herod and the wise men. But we should also look forward to when Jesus will come with the clouds of heaven. As he promised. That's why some refer to Advent and really the whole Christian life as the time between. Christ has been born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death for our sins, physically rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. All these things have happened in the past, but his return, that's the part that's still coming. And we live in this time between Jesus's first arrival and his second arrival. In a very real sense, the powers of darkness have already been defeated at the cross. And yet, in another sense, we're still longing for the light of God's presence. Because it seems that no matter how hard we try, we just can't get rid of this darkness In the time between, in the big scheme of things, all we can really do is wait. Now, of course, part of the problem is that we're not very good at waiting. In a society that expects instant gratification, who wants to wait? On a related note, raise your hand if you ask for an instant pot for Christmas. Anybody ask for an instant pot? Okay, we have at least two people We can't even deal with crockpots anymore. We can't even wait for a crockpot. Now we have to have an instant pot. You've just made my point for me that we're not very good at waiting for things. Now, of course, I'm not any better than anybody else. I was the kid who would search my parents' house to find out what they got me for Christmas. And I'll admit that to this day, I still try to convince Olivia to tell me what I'm getting in the weeks leading up to Christmas. I'm not very patient. You're not very patient. We're not very good at waiting. And in a society that's eager to get things done, waiting feels like laziness. In a society that seeks self-starters, waiting may look like a lack of ambition or drive. In a society constantly looking for ways to be more productive, waiting often feels like a waste of time. Nevertheless... Waiting is what God has called us to do. And as we're about to see in Scripture, we're in good company. We wait, even when the darkness of our fallen world feels suffocating. Because we know that this time between that we find ourselves in won't last forever. Another Advent is coming. And the second arrival of Jesus, this second appearance, will be worth the wait. The same way the first one was some 2,000 Christmases ago. So, with that, open your Bibles to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. If you like your prophet's Italian, you can call him Malachi. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Again, we find ourselves in the time between. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the Bible, that we've talked about in small group lately, is how the promises of the New Testament and the promises of the Old Testament often can be described as already, but not yet. We see promises and hopes that you give us that in a way are already very real, but in another way are still coming. And so, Father, as we find ourselves in this time between looking back to Jesus' first arrival and looking forward to Jesus' second arrival, I pray that you give us patience. I pray that you give us faith. I pray that you would give us that hope, even when the waiting seems like a burden. I pray that this December as we consider Advent, that you would give us wisdom, humility, remind us of the true meaning of Christmas and the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. And, Father, help us to look back to the manger and look forward to the clouds when your Son will come again. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the Old Testament is full of stories about waiting. Three chapters into this thick book, after Adam and Eve have messed everything up in the Garden of Eden, God tells them that someday one of their offspring will defeat the serpent who tempted them. And when he comes, he'll set everything right, once and for all. But Adam and Eve will have to wait. Noah waits on an ark for an entire year. After God sends a catastrophic flood, the flood only lasted 40 days and 40 nights, but the waiting was much longer. Abraham waits 25 years before God finally gives him and his wife, Sarah, their son, Isaac. The Israelites waited 430 years before God freed them from slavery in Egypt. Joshua and Caleb waited 40 years before they could enter the promised land. David had more than one opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne that was rightfully his. But instead, David waited for God to act. The people of Judah waited 70 years before they could return from exile in Babylon. Over and over again throughout the Bible, God takes his time. Even when people like us want him to get a move on. And then at the end of the Old Testament, after all these stories of waiting, we get to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. His name literally means messenger. But by the time Malachi enters the scene, some good things have happened. The exile has come to an end, Jerusalem has been repopulated, the temple has been rebuilt. At first glance, it appears that things might be looking up. But if you read the book in its entirety, you see that the darkness is still around. God's people are just as misguided, corrupt, and rebellious as ever. It appears they've learned nothing from all their sufferings, and their enemies are still very much in charge. But the first message that Malachi gives in his book Is this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you. The rest of Malachi's message isn't so warm and fuzzy. There are plenty of condemnations for sin, calls to repentance, and threats of judgment. But it starts with that reassuring phrase I have loved you, says the Lord. In spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your disobedience, in spite of your lack of faith, in spite of your lack of patience, in spite of your lack of righteousness, I have loved you, says the Lord. When we're sitting here and waiting for God to act, when we feel like we're in a particular season of darkness in our own lives, maybe that four-word phrase is the best thing that we can read. I have loved you, says the Lord. But then if you look at the second half of Malachi, specifically chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and the righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, you know where that line from the Christmas hymn comes from with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. With a decree of utter destruction. Through Malachi's mouth. God makes a promise to his people. The people who he has loved. The day of the Lord is coming. And it's coming soon. Enemies will be defeated. Sinful and unclean people will be forgiven and purified. The kingdom will be restored and the wicked will be judged. It'll be a day of deliverance and joy and justice and forgiveness and reconciliation. They will all win the day. What a promise that is to these people who are simply toiling in the time of Malachi. Looking back at their glory days and looking forward and not knowing what will come next. What a promise for them. But, and really at this point it should come as no surprise, they'd have to wait for it. Like all those other people before them in Scripture. Around 400 years would pass between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. There's a 400 year gap. Those 400 or so years follow right after the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae between the Greeks. And the Persians, you may know Thermopylae because that's what the movie 300 was based off of, with King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans. During this time, Buddhism and Hinduism will thrive in India and Confucianism will develop in China. Socrates, Plato and Aristotle will write a little philosophy in Athens. Alexander the Great will do some conquering and his generals will fight over power after he dies. The Jewish family known as the Maccabees will make a heroic stand in the temple in Jerusalem. And Rome will ascend to be the most powerful empire in the world. The point is that these 400 years between the Old and New Testaments prove to be eventful. There's a lot happening in these years. But there's one thing missing. And that one thing is a prophet. There weren't any. Malachi was the last one. So for 400 years, it appears that God has gone silent. And you would think that for God's people, this must have felt like a time of great darkness. Has God forgotten about them? Were those promises about the day of the Lord and Malachi just a bunch of baloney? 400 years is a long time to wait Do you think God was just leading them on? They could probably relate with the words of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Psalm 74, verse 9. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? It's the enemy to revile your name forever. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. In other words, God, would you please hurry up and do something? We're tired of waiting. Have you ever felt the same way? You're in a period of darkness and cold, and there doesn't appear to be an end In sight. And it certainly looks as though God has gone silent. You may even wonder if he's forgotten about you. You want to keep waiting. That's a good Christian thing to do, right? You try to keep praying in hopes that maybe somewhere up there God can still hear you. But you can't help but ask, Is your waiting in vain? Are you being led on? Is your hope foolish or naive? How long do we wait? When does our waiting become imprudent or even pathetic? When do we simply resign ourselves to our lot in life, cut our losses, and just give up? Or should we, like Abraham, against all hope, in hope, keep waiting on God. In the New Testament, after all those years of silence, since the last words of the Old Testament, a man named Zechariah hears a message from God. This man and his barren wife Elizabeth will have a son, and the son's name will be John. And we read about John in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is what the angel says to Zechariah. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sounds kind of like Malachi. And then in Matthew chapter three, just a few pages after the book of Malachi ends, We see this baby, John, all grown up doing God's work. We read in Matthew three, verse one. In those days, John, the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That was even weird back then. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here comes John, and he's getting people ready for the day of the Lord. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is is at hand, just like Malachi promised that someday it would. And this John guy reminds people of Elijah. He looks like a prophet. He sounds like a prophet. He eats like a prophet. And let's be honest, he probably smells like a prophet. A prophet? We haven't seen one of those guys in 400 years. We haven't seen one of those people since Malachi. And then in Matthew 11, not long after Jesus's ministry began, Jesus says this about John. Matthew 11, starting in verse seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And then Jesus quotes Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So according to Jesus, the wait is over. The promise that God issued through Malachi is finally happening. The day of the Lord is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The messenger has come preparing the way of the Lord. John is the messenger. And the Lord is none other than Jesus. The son of righteousness that Malachi talked about has finally risen to take away all the darkness and cold of this fallen world. God has broken his silence and has finally ripped open the heavens and come down in the flesh in his son, Jesus Christ. And with the arrival of Jesus, that day of the Lord is here. The kingdom of heaven is in your presence. So in a way, the wait is over. And yet, in another way, the wait is just beginning. That's the time we find ourselves in the time between the wait from the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament was a long one, but it was worth it. I guess you can chalk it up as yet another example of God fulfilling his promises, even if it takes a little bit longer than his people might prefer. You know, we talked earlier about our own times of darkness. Our own situations where we might be waiting on God to act. We're tempted to give up hope. We're tempted to just give in. We're waiting for God to bring about the reconciliation with a loved one that we so desperately long for. We're waiting on God to bring the healing that our body so badly needs. We're waiting on God to finally end the unjust suffering that just won't seem to go away. Now, no responsible preacher or pastor or Christian will tell you that things will definitely get better in this life. We simply can't make that promise. But we can promise that things will be better in eternity. And if nothing else, your fellow believers can love you, serve you, pray for you, and encourage you as you wait. Even if that wait doesn't end until death or until Christ returns That second advent. And like those old Israelites, way back in the book of Malachi, we too are in a state of waiting. We celebrate at Christmas that Christ has already come, but we eagerly look forward to him coming again. And based on God's track record of fulfilling his promises, I think we can wait with confidence, knowing that even if it takes a little bit longer than we might prefer, God will come through. We can have confidence that the cold and silent darkness of this fallen world won't win in the end. This time between that we find ourselves in won't last forever. One day, maybe soon, the sun of righteousness will rise again. The heavens will be ripped open again and Jesus will appear again. And when he does, those who love him, those who fear him, will leap like calves from the stall. But for now, we wait. We look back at the manger with joy, and we look forward to the clouds with confidence. We lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We pray for each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable, and teach each other. We look for even the tiniest ways to shine the light of Christ in this dark and cold world, to prepare the way of the Lord the way John did, to point people's eyes to Christ the way John did. We wait and wait and wait some more, knowing all the while that our waiting will not be in vain. While we remember the first advent, We look forward to the second Advent as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. Like so many of your people before us, we are in a state of waiting. And as we talked about, waiting is not always easy. But I pray that you'd give us patience, that you'd give us faithfulness, that as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, that we would stay awake, that we would prepare the way of the Lord and be ready for that day of the Lord when it comes. Father, thank you that we don't wait with blind hope. We don't wait with naive allegiance. We wait with confidence. Because you have never failed in the past, even if it takes a long, long time in our minds. So, Father, again, be with us as we wait this Advent. Be with us as we look backwards at the first coming of Christ and look forward to the second coming of Christ. Find us faithful in the meantime. Help us remember who we are, who you've made us to be, and the future that you have in store for us. We love you. We worship you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.